longing for God's love. He understands God's promises. He understands the judgment. He's got all of this, all of this weight on him from the message that he has to deliver. And in this moment, he just wants to know that God still cares, that God loves him. And this is so applicable to us because I know that there's a room full of people here this morning that just want to know that God still cares. You want to know that God loves you. We have a longing for God's love. We have a longing for God's mercy. <clears throat> Especially the, with, with all that's happened over the last 10 to 12 months. We, we just, I know there's a lot of people who, uh, there's so much uncertainty going on, whether it's with your health, whether it's with your job, whether uh, it, it, it's with family members, whatever it may be. You just find yourself in a place where you're just like, God, I just really need to know that you love me right now. I just, I, I just really need to know that you're there. I really need to know that you still care about me because right now I'm just not feeling it. That's the place that Isaiah is coming from. He sees this judgment coming. He's like, God, do you even care about us anymore? Where, where, where are you? Where is your love for us? And so that's the place that Isaiah is coming from. That's the place that many of us are coming from. This morning. And so let's get into this text and, and really break it down to see what Isaiah is saying. The first part of verse 15, he says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where are your zeal and your might. So basically, what Isaiah is saying to God, he's saying, God, where are you? Are you just hanging out up there in heaven? Are you enjoying yourself up there in, in your holy habitation? Are you enjoying yourself? In heaven, because things down here right now are not great. Where are you? And then he says, where is your zeal? And, and when he says this, he says, God, where are your zeal and your might? What he's saying is, he's referring back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the passage that Moriah read. In Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of, of hosts will do this. So Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, he's saying that the throne of David will never be broken. Uh, the, the, he's, he's, in his mind, the, God is promising that the nation of Israel will stand forever. But at the same time, God's telling him that there's this judgment coming where the land is going to be laid waste, the people are going to be carried away. And so Isaiah's crying out to God and he's saying, God, where is that zeal from chapter 9? Where is that gone? Where are you? You've given us all of these promises and, and now you're nowhere to be found. You're telling us that this this nation of Babylon is going to come carry us away. Our land's going to be laid waste. They're going to burn our crops. They're going to kill our warriors. They're going to carry us away as slaves. Where is that zeal that you were talking about in Isaiah chapter 9? He's simply asking God, where are you? And I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room this morning who are just looking up to the sky saying, God, where are you? I lost my job. I lost a loved one. My 
child is rebelling, they're, they're, they're a prodigal, whatever it may be in your life right now, you may be looking up saying, God, where are you? You've given me all of these promises. You've, you, you've claimed your, your zeal will carry me through just like the promise that Isaiah was looking back to. And, and you say, God, where are you? And to be honest, uh, you know, God in some ways should feel distant, okay? Because we all feel distant from God at times, but in some ways he should feel distant and untouchable because he is transcendent. He is the creator of the universe. He is set apart from us. Isaiah, again, knew this better than anyone. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, he describes God's Transcendence. When we say transcendence, what we mean is he is above us. He is set apart from us. That's what his holiness means. Is it's not just a moral purity, but it's, a set, it's, it's to be set apart. God is different than we are. In Isaiah 40, verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So Isaiah is describing God's transcendence. He's saying, hey, God is outside of time and space. He is far superior to us. He is far different than us. He is untouchable to us. And so, yes, it is very easy for God to feel distant from us because he is completely set apart from us. But here's the great thing about the God that we serve. Here's the great thing about our Creator If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, pretty common passage to read around Christmas time. So I want you to remember how Isaiah described God in chapter 40, verse 22. He's outside the circle of the earth. He's transcendent. He's above us. He's set apart from us. His creation is like grasshoppers to him. Think about that, and then let's read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then look at this, which means God with us. We have a transcendent creator that is above us. He's set apart. He's holy. But in his love, he chose to be with us. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the son, the second member of the Trinity. Come to be with his creation. We serve a very transcendent, very great, very superior God, but we also serve a loving God that chose to come into his creation to draw near to us. 
to be with us. So yes, God is distant. He's outside of time and space. He's far away from us. He's far superior to us. But he chooses to be near. He chooses to draw near to us because left to our own devices, we would never draw near to God on our own. Left to our own devices, we would uh, rebel, we would run away from God our entire lives, but God chose to draw near to us in Jesus Christ. When you look at the birth of Christ, you see God coming to his creation. When you look at the cross, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, you see God coming into his creation to be near his creation and to save his creation. And, and you may be sitting there, well, I understand that God drew near to us in Jesus. I understand that, uh, that, that, that Jesus is God with us, but he's not here right now. He ascended. If you look at Acts chapter 1, if you look at the, the end of the, of the Gospels, you see that Jesus ascended, and so he's not here with me right now. I need to feel God now. I need to know that God is with me now. Well, in John chapter 14... Jesus tells us that he is present with his people now. In verse 16 of John chapter 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what Jesus is saying is he's explaining to his disciples, he's preparing them for his ascension. He's saying, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be risen on the third day. I'm going to spend some time with you, and then I'm going to ascend to the Father. But even after I'm gone, I'll be present with you through the Spirit. If you're a regenerate, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, if you have been made regenerate, if you have repented from your sins and trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have God present within you. The book of Hebrews calls it a deposit that God makes. Basically, he leaves a piece of himself within you. It, he dwells within you for your entire life until we can experience his full presence after this life. And so God is present with you. God drew near to his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He came into time and space to be with us. And if we trust in Christ, if we trust in his gospel, if we repent from our sins and follow him, then we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living within us. He can't be any more present than that. It says the Spirit is dwelling within you. And so as you sit and you long for the presence of God, you feel that God is distant. You feel that God is nowhere to be found. He's up in heaven just hanging out, not really paying attention to what's going on down here. Remember that God came into time and space to be with his creation. And not only that, after Jesus ascended, he left his spirit to be present with you always. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells the disciples, Lo, I will be with you always. He can guarantee that because he left the Spirit to be with us, to dwell within us. And so God is near to us 
I know he may feel distant sometimes. I know he may feel like he's not there, but he is always near his people. He is always present with his people. And it's important to understand, too, I, wanna, I don't want people to go home and be confused because remember the promise is to Zion. The promise is to Jerusalem, okay, in the book of Isaiah. Well, what Isaiah didn't fully understand was the passage that Byron read from Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, verse 9, John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, who's the bride? Who's the wife of the Lamb? It's the church. It's believers. It's Jesus' people. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So when Isaiah has these promises for Zion, for Jerusalem, those promises are not to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was merely a symbolic representation of the spiritual reality, okay? There are two Israels that we need to understand when we read the Old Testament. There's the nation of Israel, the ethnic Israel, and, the, and there's the spiritual or true Israel. And so these eternal promises about Zion's glorification, about their exaltation, that, that is not talking about the nation of Israel. That's talking about the true or the spiritual Israel, the church, those that believe in Christ, those that trust in the Messiah. And so this presence of God that we experience, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the salvation that's provided through Christ, that only applies to those that trust in Christ. The world does not have this special presence of the Holy Spirit within them, just like John chapter 14 told us. Jesus says that the world, those apart from Christ, those that are rebelling against God, those that haven't turned to Christ, they don't, they don't know that Spirit. They can't receive it. Only when we turn to Christ and trust in Him do we receive this presence of God. Only those that are members of the true Israel experience this presence. And that's important to understand as we read this because these promises that Isaiah is talking about apply to spiritual Israel as opposed to, to ethnic Israel. And so he goes on in verse 15. He starts that first part saying, you know, basically, God, where are you? You promised us all this stuff, and I don't feel like you're following through. And then he ends verse 15 saying, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So Isaiah starts out asking God where he is. Now he's saying, God, where is your affection, God? I not only feel distant from you, I feel like you don't have any affection towards me anymore. I feel like you don't have any uh, compassion towards me anymore. And and actually, uh, Isaiah really reminds me of Adley in this passage. Um, Adley sometimes gets in trouble. I mean, it happens with kids. Uh, and sometimes she does things where we, we, we have to spank her, okay? She needs to be punished. Um, and, and so 
We'll sit her down and we'll explain to her what she did wrong and, and we'll spank her. And, and so um, she has that just punishment. But here's what typically happens following the spanking. Um, of course, there's tears. You know, she's got the big crocodile tears. And then she'll look up at Kelly and I and she'll say, do you still love me? Okay, I mean, it's just enough to rip your heart out. I mean, you, you know, you just, I want to take the spanking back. I forget it. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. But, it, I mean, it's, it's enough to rip your heart out because she, she's being punished and she's just like, do, do you still love me? I know you're punishing me, but do you still love me? Well, that's Isaiah in this passage. He, he, knows that the puni- he knows that this punishment, that this judgment that's coming for Judah is deserved. He knows that Judah's wicked, wicked that, that, that they deserve this exile that's coming. He fully comprehends that, but he's saying, God, do you, do you still love us through this? Do you, do you still care about us? Do you still have affection for us? I, mean, I, I know that the punishment's just, but do you still love me? And I think a lot of us find ourselves in that same place. Intellectually, we understand that the Christian life has suffering. We understand that God disciplines us, that he sanctifies us through suffering, that the Christian life is not always going to be easy. Intellectually, we understand that. But there's still times where we're just times get hard and we say, God, do you still love me? Do you still care about me? Do you still have affection for me? That's where Isaiah was, and I really think that's where we find ourselves a lot of times. God, I just really need to know that I understand that this is all working towards something, and I get that. But do you still love me? And honestly, we really don't need to look any farther than John 3.16 probably one of the 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 most well-known verse in the bible but in john 3 16 john says for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life if you ever question god's love you really don't need to look any further than john 3 16 look it says for god so Love the world. God didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. There's a weight to it. There's there's a weightiness to the amount of love that God has for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loved the world so much that he submitted his son to a brutal and humiliating murder so that we could be saved, so that we could experience His presence, so that we could be with Him and be near Him. One of my favorite songs is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I love that song. One of my favorite lines in that song is it was my sin that held Him there. And it paints this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, and, and it's my sin held him there. What that means is Jesus was experiencing this, this brutal torture and murder, and he resolved within himself to, to hang on that cross until the price of our sin was paid. He would not allow himself to be taken off of that cross until our debt was paid. 
Because God so loved the world. If you ever question God's love for you, you need to look no further than the cross. Look at the wrath, look at the punishment that Jesus endured for you. He so loves us. And, and that wasn't just a one-time love, okay? I think a lot of us think that, oh, well, Jesus loved us and he saved us, but then he just kind of leaves us to, to ourselves. He doesn't care about us anymore after that. That that's, couldn't be further from the truth. If you look at Acts chapter 7, it's our first recording of, of a martyr, of a Christian martyr. We have Stephen, who's preaching the gospel, and, and he's confronted by, uh, by a bunch of Pharisees and, and, and scribes, and it's a very long passage, but he ends up being stoned to death. And in, in Acts chapter 7, Starting in verse 54, we see, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this is a really significant passage because... Every other time we see a picture of Jesus in Scripture, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen, in this moment of extreme suffering, this moment in which he is being killed for his faith, gazes into heaven and he sees the Son standing at the right hand of the Father. And most scholars believe that Luke writes this, makes sure to include this observation because he wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is not seated at the right hand of the Father, completely indifferent or unengaged with Stephen. He is standing to receive his martyr. And so I want to encourage you this morning, Jesus still has affection for his people. He's not kicked back in heaven just enjoying things until it's time to wrap it up. He is engaged with his people. He's involved. He's not indifferent. He is affectionate for you. When you suffer, when you go through difficult things, he's not ignoring you. We may not be able to see him the same way that Stephen saw him, but he is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's engaged, he's involved, and he cares for you. His love and his affection were not just a one-time thing on the cross. They continue throughout eternity. And so when you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you feel like God's distant, when you feel like he doesn't love you anymore, you can know that just as Jesus was standing for Stephen, he's engaged and he's involved with your suffering. And so Isaiah asked God, where are you? You feel distant from me. He asked God, where's your affection for me? Where's your compassion for me? I don't feel your love for me anymore. And we see how both of those are found and answered in Christ, in the Messiah that was to come. But then we get into the next verse, verse 16 of Isaiah 63. And he gives God two reminders. And I, I love this. He First of all, he reminds God of his paternal commitment to Israel. He says, for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. 
So he reminds God that, hey, God, you're, you're our father. You're, you're supposed to love us. And this is actually a really profound statement from Isaiah because we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels that uh, the ancient Jews typically, uh, they, they had a lot of problems with putting too much stock in their ethnicity, in their DNA. They thought simply because they were descendants of Abraham that they were good. Okay, we've got the Mosaic Covenant, you know, as long as I show up for the Day of Atonement, you know, give a few, few sacrifices, like we're good. They, they thought their ethnicity is what made them right with God. And, and Isaiah shows really profound revelation here because he's, he's saying Abraham doesn't know us. Israel or Jacob does not acknowledge us. He's saying, God, our ancestry doesn't mean anything. Okay, I'm not coming to you because I'm a Jew. I'm coming to you because you are my personal father. What we see here is Isaiah showing an understanding of what we talked about earlier, the difference between the two Israels. He's saying being a part of ethnic Israel is not nearly as important as being part of the true Israel, of God being our spiritual father. And so he's crying out to God, saying, God, you are our father. And as New Testament believers, we look at this and we have a better understanding of God as our father because we understand the concept of adoption. And I think this is something that's not talked about enough. In fact, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he, the longest chapter in that book is on adoption. And he says that adoption is the highest blessing that God gives us. It's not the greatest blessing. He says the greatest blessing, the blessing with the most weight, is our salvation, the fact that God paid the price for our sins. But the highest blessing is the fact that after God saves us from our sins, he goes one step further and brings us into his family. And I think this is so important for us to to understand that the Father loves us. Because I think a lot of times Christians feel like Jesus is the one that loves us and he's like standing between us and the Father. And the Father just wants to punish us and Jesus is like, no, 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 uh, the, the, let's save them. And he's, he's like constantly trying to convince the Father not to throw us into hell. And that's actually not true. All three members of the Trinity, our Trinitarian God, all three members play a role in the process of salvation. They're all in agreement in this plan of redemption. In Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there. We see it's a very well-known verse. It says that it was the will of the Father, or some, some translations say it was the Father's good pleasure to crush the Son. So yes, Jesus is the one that paid the price for our sins. The Son covers our sins. The Son pacifies the wrath of the Father. But the Father was in agreement from before time began with this plan of redemption. He adopts us into His family through the Son. We are made spiritual siblings with Christ, but we are children of the Father. And so we're, we're adopted into this heavenly family whenever we come to know Christ. And God loves us as his children. That's a love that never 
goes away. It's a love that never dies. It, it, it's a love that might be hard to see at times because he has to discipline us as a father disciplines his children. He has to, he, he's sanctifying us. And so at times we, we may think, well, God, I, I just can't feel your love right now. But he does love us as a father. He adopts us into his family. And Isaiah is reminding God, hey, God, remember, you're, you're our father. And we can cling to that knowledge. We can cling to the, to the truth that we have a heavenly father. He's personal to us. He, he cares for us. He loves us. He's not cold. He's not distant. We have a loving heavenly father. And Isaiah reminds him of this paternal Commitment, but then he also ends the passage with his with a reminder of God's redemptive commitment. He says, "God, you're our redeemer. From of old is your name." So he's reminding God that that he is their redeemer. And, and if you think, and you can look back to Isaiah forty three. Verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. So what the context of that, Isaiah is prophesying, he, he's naming Babylon specifically. He's saying the nation of Babylon is going to come in, they're going to destroy Israel, they're going to carry you away, but he's promising redemption. He's saying, you will return. You will survive this exile, and I will redeem you from it. And Isaiah is reminding God of this promise of redemption. Well, here's the great thing for us as New Testament believers. We're promised the same redemption. Okay, remember, the two different Israels, ethnic or, or national Israel, represents the reality of spiritual Israel. We see the redemption. Uh, we went through this the book of Exodus for the entire last year. And we saw that as God brought, brought Israel out of Egypt, that was foreshadowing Jesus. And instead of Moses bringing Israel out of Egypt, we have Jesus bringing his people out of bondage to sin and death. And so it's foreshadowing salvation. It's foreshadowing Jesus' work on the cross and rescuing us from our bondage to sin but here's the great thing, okay, we, we, we know that we've been freed from sin and death, but we still have the world to deal with. We still live in this fallen world. We still live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that constantly rebels against God and rejects the gospel. And so Egypt and what it represents, sin and death, they have been conquered, they have been defeated by Christ, but we still have to deal with Babylon, this world that we live in. But there's an awesome promise made to us, and as we long for God's love, we can take assurance in his victory over Babylon. Look at Revelation 18. <clears throat> Revelation 18, verse 2. Says, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then skip down to verse 8. It says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now jump over to 19, and we're going to read the first two verses of chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more... They cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, we don't have time to get into a big you know, discussion on eschatology, but there's an idea called idealism. And what that means is when you read the book of Revelation, instead of looking at it as an historical event that is yet to come or looking at it as an historical event that has happened already, you look at it as something symbolic explaining what's already happening and what's going to happen. And so when we see this language of Babylon being defeated, of Babylon being judged, what John is saying here in Revelation is that Jesus Christ will defeat Babylon, Babylon being the world and everything within this world that opposes God. And I really think that this idealistic view of Revelation is very plausible because of what we see in Isaiah. Because just like Moses leading Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus represents Christ leading his people out of bondage to sin and death on the cross, this imagery of Babylon being defeated is just like Jesus defeating the world and everything that opposes him upon his return. And that's what we have to look forward to. As we long for his love, we're assured of his victory. We're assured of his redemption. We're going uh, to be rescued from this world that we find ourselves in. One day we're not going to have to contend with it. All the things that make it hard to be a Christian, all the things that make it hard to love God, all the things that make it hard to follow Jesus will be done away with. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that because it gets hard sometimes. And so we're promised redemption. We're promised victory over Babylon. And so in closing, I just have a few questions for you. Are you longing for the love of God today? Do you feel like he's distant? Do you feel like he has no affection towards you? Do you feel secure in your adoption? Do you trust in God's redemption and his victory? Because all of these things are found in Christ alone. He is God among us, drawing near to his creation. He is the proof of God's affection towards us. He is our brother that makes our adoption possible, and he's our redeemer that will defeat our enemies and deliver us 
from bondage. Christ is where God's love is found. And if you're longing for God's love, look for it in Him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You that when we long for Your love and we seek it in Christ, we will find it. When you feel distant, when, when, you feel like, when we feel like you don't have affection for us, when we feel unsecure in our adoption, when we feel unsecure in redemption and, and, the, and the, the world that is weighing down on us, God, the answer to all of those, the, 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 the place of hope in all of those is in Christ. And God, I pray that everyone in this room this morning would look to him, that they would look to Christ And find your love, God. In Jesus' name, amen.